1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Cliff Sloan about his career in marketing, about why nonprofits need to improve their marketing campaigns, and about the kind of marketing that he himself grew tired of. I'm getting on this plane to God knows where and, you know, sitting down and meeting to discuss with a fast food person whether the logo should be a shrimp or a lobster. Here's Debbie Melman.
0: Cliff Sloan is a creative director and he's known as a marketing guru. One of his earliest jobs was on the Michael Jackson Pepsi campaign, which should give you some idea of the caliber and the longevity of his career. In 1993, Cliff started the Sloan Group with just five employees and $10,000 borrowed from his parents. The company quickly grew into a 60-person firm that earned many awards and clients like MTV, HBO, MasterCard, and Disney. In 2008, Cliff turned his talents in a different direction. He founded Fillin Company, a marketing firm that brings together those who want to do good with those who want to give back. Cliff Sloan, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Diff. So Cliff, you started your career in the early 80s, and this is when I actually first met you, though we also went to the same state university in New York. You were working at a small rock magazine called Rock Bill, which was distributed at arenas, stadiums, and concert venues. You were the magazine's first creative director, but you also wrote for the publication as well. Have you always been both a writer and a designer?
1: Uh, no. It's actually a little bit of a funny story because I wanted more than anything when I came out of college to be a writer. I worked at the school newspaper, particularly writing for music, uh, the music aspect of it. And more than anything, I think I wanted to write for Rolling Stone. That would have been my, my, my dream coming out of college. But the job market being what it was, I was scrounging around New York City trying to find a job. And the first job that I could get. Was as a production person at Fairchild Publications, which was kind of embarrassing for me at the time because the publications that I was working on were like supermarket news and electronics retailing and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, my friends would say, well, what are you working on? I'd be like, oh,
0: supermarket news. You know?
1: <laughs> and um, but, but All
0: noble magazines. <laughs> yes. And,
1: and, and um, what I was doing was working in the production department there and writing freelance for this music magazine, among others. And um, they really wanted me to come to Rockbill. And so I learned my production, and I was writing at the time, and I befriended the creative director of W, who was a woman named Mare Early, who was this very sort of hardcore, downtowny, uh, punky-looking type woman. And she, out of the goodness of her heart, I swear, uh, took me under her wing. Because I had asked a couple of creative directors at, at Fairchild. I said, hey, can you teach me how to be an art director? Because Rockbill's going to be hiring an art director. And I really want to learn how to design. And, there, <laughs> you know, there was a fair number of people who were like, eh, listen, either you're born with it or you're not. And, and, and But Mare, Mare kind of took me under her wing. And she used to come to... Um, I remember, I mean, I lived in a fifth-floor walk-up on 24th Street at the time, and Mary used to come with her her rapidographs, her acetate, (laughs) and drill me, and actually helped finance my going to SVA way back when, um, evening classes, to kind of learn how to design. And then the editor of the music magazine, I guess I could tell this story right now. Absolutely. he, He said, hey, you know, I'll pad your writing checks a little bit if you use the money to go to, to school to learn how to be a designer. And you can come over here as, as our lead designer.
0: Patronage personified. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, between mayor and SVA way back when, I became a reasonably talented designer and I went over. So when I arrived at Rockbill, I was somewhat of a triple threat because I knew production and I could write and I could design. So for them, it was uh, – I think I turned out to be um, sort of like a Swiss army knife in their publishing empire. But I had a ball. I was in L.A. spending time with you know Rick James and, and the, <laughs> the cast of Spinal Tap. And they sent me to Jamaica and I was hanging out with Sly and Robbie and Black Uhuru and London. And so I was kind of at that time – at the arrival of Rockville, I was kind of living the dream because I was writing, I was meeting all these bands, I was designing, I was producing. It was a lot of fun.
0: Now, even then, as, as I guess a, a baby designer or a designer in training, you, I remember that you were doing work that was pretty risky. I remember you did a layout that was all white no type, with a teeny tiny image of a major rock star, though I I now don't remember who that was. And, you know, at that time, having a, a rock star the size of a postage stamp in a huge magazine spread was unthinkable. And yet you were doing these really wonderful things. Where did that confidence come from?
1: Well, when I was growing up, the people that I admired most, my heroes, uh, they all had a sort of sense, I guess, of of confidence or audacity to put themselves out there, and um, I think inherently understood self promotion to a degree. And, and there was a certain period when I was like eleven or twelve, and I remember the Rolling Stones coming to town and, and proclaiming themselves the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And not long after, uh, Muhammad Ali was fighting Joe Frazier. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. And I remember Joe Namath guaranteeing a Super Bowl win. And, you know, he was always out partying all night and waking up and winning football games in the morning. So I think the way my 12-year-old brain probably processed it was it made a lot of sense to put yourself out there as long as you could back it up. And so I never really came to the world or viewed the world as You know, I never wanted to just come and and quietly go about my business. I always thought it was better, for better or worse, to put yourself out there and get noticed. And so uh, that's just the way I, I proceeded. And I guess I'd rather go down swinging than just go quietly.
0: Rockville was owned by Rave Communications, and the founders were also pioneers in creating platforms for brands to sponsor musical acts. They, in fact, created the first deals between Pepsi and Michael Jackson. And I remember at the time that there was a very real sense that if an artist was sponsored by a brand, it meant that they'd sold out. Um, Now, not only is it completely acceptable, it's a sign that an artist has actually made it. And I was at a Lady Gaga concert recently, and she talked about her Verizon phone on the stage during the show. And so did you see this coming? Did you have any idea that 30 years later everybody would be sponsored and sponsorship would just be part of the way that rock and roll works now?
1: Um, Well, we knew. But conversely, you know, about bands selling out, on the other hand, you had brands. and I mean, I remember being in conversations where you could only get an alcohol or a tobacco company because nobody would want to be associated with, you know. The likes of a Mick Jagger or a Keith Oh, Ritter. I know. Remember yeah. when
0: Revlon turned Madonna down? Yeah. She went to them yeah. and wanted to have them yeah.
1: sponsor her. So, you know, times have changed, you know, and now that I understand it all from both sides, I think it's right for some bands and, and not right for others. I mean, I don't know. Does anyone
0: sponsor Marilyn Manson? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. We'll have to look into it. But I read that artists can't even even go on tour anymore without a sponsor because they need that money to make money.
1: Indeed. And, Indeed. And, well, we all know the whole financial model has kind of dropped out of the music business. But, yeah, I think it's important.
0: I read a, a really marvelous article you wrote about musical artists and branding, and I'd like to read a short excerpt from it. You say, The biggest stars are almost without exception, great marketers. They are performers who embrace the notion that building and maintaining an emotional bond with their audience is critical to their success. And building a unique emotional bridge to your audience is the essence of understanding what it means to be a living brand. It's not a small amount of work. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on what it means to be a living brand.
1: To live it, to portray it... um some of the ones that come to mind, I mean, some of my faves I always mention, but the Rolling Stones, I mean, that, that lick, that, that tongue logo has become as emblematic as almost any Fortune 500 logo I can think of. And, and, Absolutely. And, um,
0: and and I would say that at the time, same, the same could have been said about the Grateful Dead logo, that these became emblematic of not only the bands, but and not only a lifestyle, but an attitude.
1: Yeah, and, and – Like Apple today, right? I mean, a good brand becomes sort of a badge. It stands for something. And so whether it was the Rolling Stones and their their lifestyle and their approach to the world and their music came to be emblematic of, of certain things. And so people had pride in walking around with it on their shirts, on their jackets, whatever. The Grateful Dead did the same thing. And so, you know, it kind of becomes a badge, an extension of who you are, like, like a piece of clothing. It's a statement about what you believe in. And um, so sometimes it's music, and um, sometimes it's gadgetry, and sometimes it's clothing. But I think uh, ultimately, it comes down to a statement of, of who you are. And we all know that a kid walking down the street with a Taylor Swift t-shirt probably doesn't live the same lifestyle as a kid walking down the street with a Marilyn Manson teacher. So,
0: <laughs> so do you think that the attitude or the culture around an identity or a persona like the Rolling Stones or Marilyn Manson or the Grateful Dead is something that's partially manufactured or do you think that it's sort of organically built?
1: I think it's probably a little of both. I mean, I know that that the Stones' image began with their manager. I think Keith always says, "Oh, you know, the Beatles already had the white hat. What was left? Black, uh, the
0: black hat." Nice.
1: Um, on the other hand, they didn't do anything to derail that image, you know, and so they did really live it, and I don't think it was a false image for a period. I mean, I don't think they live like that anymore, but their image transcends time and has just become, again, emblematic. Do you think they have a brand manager? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know, but I'll volunteer if the job is open.
0: So we worked together until the early 90s, and then in 1993, you borrowed $10,000 from your parents and started the Sloan Group, a creative firm that specialized in youth, entertainment, and technology. And technology was really not what it is now back in the early 90s. What made you decide on those particular disciplines?
1: Well, um, okay, so I jump out from Rockville, and you learn very quickly that it's not just about creative if you're an entrepreneur. There we were, and we would sit around the table at night and say, wait a second, we're working for Gillette. We're working for Pepsi. We're working for MCI. No one knows who we are. What's wrong with this picture? It was interesting because I – listen, I never wanted to be a starving artist. So suddenly I had to sell. I had to strategize if I wanted to win the bigger accounts. I had to present. It wasn't feasible for me to be the lone creative gun anymore. And so the next step up was how do I build a culture how is my agency going to be, excuse me, the shit that every creative wants to come and work at? And so there was a period at the Sloan Group where we we weren't uh, purebreds, but there was a, a lot of horsepower, a lot of creative horsepower under that roof. And so I became more fascinated with building a culture, building a reputation, having an agency that would attract creative talent and become – Thought about so that if someone was going to call in a creative agency for an assignment, we would be considered within the top whatever, five, ten if we were lucky.
0: So at the time, you were the president and the chief creative officer. You also oversaw all agency operations, led the agency's strategic marketing, brand engineering, and business development divisions. How did you go about getting your business? How did you go about making that happen having to do all of those other things at the same time? It was
1: a combination of some referral work, some RFP work, and it was a lot of spec work because most of the time we were slugging it out against bigger agencies. And we didn't have the luxury of going in there and saying, you know, we and and you know what, we were we were cocky confident that if we could just get our at bat and get our creative on the table that you know we had a pretty good chance and so we didn't hesitate you know we we used to stay there all night and just have fun and come up with ideas and and, um, so it wasn't like pulling teeth at all I mean to us to me it was an exciting opportunity that we just took on
0: Do you have a favorite project or a project that you're most proud of during that time? Towards the end
1: of the Sloan group well, not, it lived on after I left, I shouldn't say that. But okay. towards the end of my period with the Sloan Group, uh, we did a spot for, or a number of spots for 9 11 relief in 2001. And that really changed a lot for me. Um, How so? Well, I had been marketing, you know, a lot of things ESPN, Disney, this, that. But then I went on the front lines and I was talking to first responders and kids who had been affected, and clergy, and the stories that came out of there. I mean, it was no comparison to me in terms of the emotion and the power. It really kind of lit my fire, my initial fire, for the cause marketing type of stuff. And everything else seemed to pale.
0: So you just mentioned the at the end of this loan group. And for you, it was about selling the agency. So there you are about six, seven years into this trajectory. You started the company with a loan from your parents for $10,000. You started with just a a few people. Now you have 50, 60, 70 people. You're billing $50 million, and you, you decide to sell your company to the Interpublic Group of Companies. So a very important and very big question that I've been dying to ask you. Did you pay your parents back?
1: <laughs> you know, my dad insisted not only to pay him back, but I paid him back with interest.
0: <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Long before I sold the agency, by the way. <laughs> um, but, you know, I just want to go back to another point that we were talking about with um, spec work and creative work and the power of it. And... and the agency that eventually bought me, the owner said, "You know, you know, I was talking to him. Why'd you buy him?" I said they beat us one too many times. Wow! And so, and that that I know, in, in specifically was on some HBO business. It's interesting for all you young creatives out there. I mean, you know, if you've got the energy and you've got the passion, and you're at a stage in your life where I mean money's always important, but i mean if you're if you're spewing good creative all the time, just put it out there because it will catch people 's eyes and and you 'd be amazed where it can take you
0: so i i didn 't know if I was going to go down this path in our conversation when you brought it up the first time, but since you've brought it up again, um, I have a pretty anti-spec stance. Yeah, (laughs) And I I think it's probably been fairly well documented online. So I guess I I need to ask you if you still feel that in in this day and age that we're living in with the 99 ideas online and all of the um, contests and the sort of grand solicitation of crowdsourcing ideas from anyone and everyone, if if you see that as the same type of spec work that you were doing back then?
1: Maybe in some cases. And I don't really do spec work anymore. But see,
0: that's the and, and so why is that? I mean, I, I often say to, to young people and to students now that ask me about spec work that I don't think spec work is about free work. Anymore. I think what spec work is, is an abuse of power. Somebody has it and they try to get as many people as they can to come up with ideas for them and then they'll pick one of the thousand that come, come in. Whereas I think at the time in the agency model, two, three, maybe four agencies are vying for the work. It's sort of a closed system and there's an agreement in, especially in the agency world where you're, you're pitching for this work but you're going to get multi-million dollar campaign in return if you are the winner yeah and so i think there's a fundamental difference between that mutual agreement knowing what the rules are going into it you have a one in you know four chance in getting the business as opposed to let's open it up to the entire universe and have three thousand ideas to choose from and and then you're left sort of spinning your wheels not even knowing why you might not get the business
1: yeah well i I agree and 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 Back when I was doing it, it was that kind of closed system. I was just trying to outgun a bigger,
0: badder, more established entity. Um, but let's, let's go back to your trajectory. After 12 years in business, um, you were named the marketing, youth marketing guru by advertising age. You sell your company. You pay your parents back. But you don't retire. You stayed with Interpublic for quite a long time, and you had a a new role in the company, but ultimately decided that it was time to leave. You then went back to school and studied philanthropy at Columbia University. What made you decide to do that? Why not just donate money? Why study philanthropy?
1: I wanted to step back and get away from agency life for a while. Some of the things that drove it are kind of comical, some of the stuff that goes down in the agency world. But especially after doing the 9-11 thing, I, 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 the agency will go nameless. But I'm like in a scene out of Mad Men on the 40th floor, and they're talking about big strategy. And the head of the agency is like, I've got it. You know, the Condiment Hall of Fame. Can you believe there's no ketchup, mustard? And I'm like, you know what? I can't do this for you. Like, like, I'm out, you know. Is <laughs> your Jerry Maguire moment. Yeah. Well, uh, there were a few of them, you know, I, and I, and I had others once. Um, again, go nameless, but I mean, I remember flying on in a snowstorm on December 22nd. You know, my my little son's like, "Daddy, will you watch a football game with me?" And I'm like, "No, I'm getting on this plane to God knows where." And and you know, sitting down and meeting to discuss with a fast food person whether the logo should be a shrimp or a lobster. <laughs> And I was like, you know, <laughs> this is wearing – there's got to be – and so if I grew the agency and I got to a certain point and, and I was like, you know what, what's the point of having grown it and sold it if if I didn't buy myself the freedom to have have some other options? So I stepped back from agency life. And it was tough, you know, to go from running an agency and, 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 and at that time – the culture was very much about, you know, I was on a plane every other day and I had two cell phones and, you know, it was that kind of era and like, you know, the busy you were and it's, you know. Yeah, busy not, as
0: badge value. Exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. So, you know, God forbid I should walk down the, the block without a phone attached to my ear, you know. So, anyway, you go from that and then all of a sudden, when the phones stop, it's like, whew, the silence is pretty, pretty heavy, you know. And I actually, um, I don't even think you know this, but, you know, I started a a food brand. Hot sauce. Hot sauce. Whitney's hot sauce. (laughs) So so my wife makes this killer guacamole and hot sauce and stuff. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to start marketing this stuff. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a marketing guy, right? So I'm running around to all these stores with samples and brochures and the brand that we had worked up. And lo and behold, it starts taking off a little bit. And then it's like really like there I am like I'm in a little kitchen out in Long Island cutting up avocados all day delivering stuff in a food truck, and it just got crazy. I was giving tasting at Macy's and whatnot, but you know I went again from being the head of an agency and then I was the delivery guy, and I had people say to me, you know, you go in the back, you're you're a, you're an N word now, wow. you know, and I was like, wow. I was I was trying to do this fun little artisan, you know, cook thing, and and but it was really an interesting study in the way people get treated based on people's perceptions, you know. Right. Um,
0: Delivery boy versus CEO.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, 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 isn't that, and getting it, screamed at on yeah. the phone, and like, and and it was really uh, quite interesting. Anyway, so I I eventually went back to the marketing thing because. Someone said to me, hey, you know, you should check out the whole – you like the nonprofit stuff. You like the 9-11 stuff. Why don't you check out this fundraising thing? I think it was at NYU at the time. And they said, you know, it's all about building relationships, about building strategies, getting people to donate money. And so I, I, I started getting into it. And I started doing work for the USTA for their community development Aspect, what is the USTA? United States Tennis Association. Oh. You jock. <laughs> and, 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 um, and then I started working for Coleman Breast Cancer Foundation doing some, some walk creative. So I went back to Columbia at night because I I the cause thing really started getting into my blood. And that was sort of how Phil and Company began, because not only was I really infatuated with the space. But once I just saw the stats of what was happening...
0: What kind of stats? Anything that you can share with us?
1: Yeah. Uh, if, if a consumer is deciding between two brands, price and quality being relatively equal, 90% of the time, they'll lean towards a purchase that's affiliated with a good cause. So think of it, close to 90. I mean, that's huge.
0: Do you think that that's dramatically different from, say, 30 years ago?
1: I do. I, I think that um, certain generations, like the millennials, for instance, very, very uh, attracted to cause related brands. And so, why
0: do you think that is, Cliff? I mean, because people talk about that as sort of one of the mainstays of what the millennials stand for and look for. What do you think that is?
1: I think that they probably came up at a time of a lot of corporate mistrust from pollution things to government things. And so I think having doing good or or contributing to a change in society is something that was appealing. And um, so I think it's, it's a product of their times.
0: So Phil & Company is named after Philanthropy & Company, not because you have a partner named Phil.
1: No, but I do have a partner named Gary, who I should <laughs> mention.
0: <laughs> Gary Zarr. Gary Czar. He started the company together in 2008. What made you decide to go back into the agency world? I missed it. So you're a serial entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I, had a, I had an idea because I saw, I saw a lot of things. I saw companies that weren't necessarily leveraging the good that they did. Even though it was so important to consumers, I saw a lot of not-for-profits that that were not on top of things from a marketing point of view. And I saw a consumer base that was hungry for this type of of work. Uh, You know, the idea was just burning in my head. You know, an agency that sat at the intersection of those three could really do some great things. And then I met Gary. Gary was like – he was the head of marketing for the NBA. That's the National Basketball Association. <laughs> <laughs>
0: glo- oh, glo- <laughs> <is it? laughs>
1: Globally, you know. And, yeah. and, and before that, he had run the American Museum of Natural History, You a very powerful not-for-profit. So I was thrilled when he stuck his hand out and shook my hand and said, OK, I'm in, and we started to build it.
0: So is your approach to working or your process different now when working for companies that are trying to do good versus companies that aren't putting a focus on being good or doing good?
1: It's different because the not-for-profits are – they're different animals. They're more value-based organizations. What does that mean? That means the people that are working there aren't necessarily working there to make as much money as they can. Okay. They're there because they believe, like, I'm going to cite one example, the YWCA. You know, you asked me, like, like, favorite client stories. One of the things I had to do was travel to about 10 YWCAs and meet with these women. Wow. I mean, you talk about storytelling. I mean, whatever brand stuff you can make up. Pales from these women that were like living in cars to women who were sex slaves telling me stories about a gun in their in you know, and yet they persevered. The YWC has twenty million women members around the world. I mean, that's a lot of power, especially from a marketing point of view. Absolutely. And so the trick is, how do you harness that power, right? And how do you have? a not-for-profit brand that has enough smarts, right, because a for-profit brand doesn't want to compromise their brand. And so, you know, implementation becomes something that you have to look at carefully. But I think that in today's environment, a not-for-profit brand that realizes their place, that realizes their following, that understands their marketability, that understands what it means to have affinity and work well with a corporate partner, that's a huge advantage because not-for-profits, I mean, one of the core things they always want to try and do, as you know, is raise money. When you have a corporate partner or a media partner, like one of the companies we work with is Cablevision. They support a uh, pancreatic cancer Foundation called the Lustgarten Foundation. Cablevision reaches like 10 million people a day. Now, Lustgarten is smart. They're a good marketing partner, and but but the power that that wields for not for profit in terms of what it means to how many people are going to come out to their walks, how much money they can raise, it's massive. It's a wonderful place to be, you know. I think, from a marketing point of view it 's a very exciting place to be if If you can take a not for profit that is really doing good and you can help them pull it together with a brand that's going to catapult you know not only the brand's reputation and loyalty and and drive some purchase along the way but you can really really elevate that not for profit in a way that would take them so much longer to do on their own and and so that's why I happen to think it's, you know, it's a very, very exciting time to be in this space.
0: After the South Asian tsunamis, Stuart Elliott wrote a piece in his advertising column in the New York Times about companies offering aid without marketing and stated that Madison Avenue is walking a fine line in determining its response to the South Asian tsunamis. How advertising addresses relief efforts is important, partly because the increasing popularity of cause-related marketing as a growing number of consumers look to spend money with companies that they perceive are contributing to the greater good. But doing well by doing good usually works best when the public considers the attempts to be altruistic rather than self-promotional. Stuart Elliott asked you to weigh in on the subject, and you stated, it's just not appropriate to plant your flag in a fresh wound. The long-term damage to an image or brand that could be done by being perceived as exploiting a tragedy, this outweighs whatever short-term benefits there would be. So how do you advise companies in these situations?
1: I I think disaster relief is a little bit of a unique animal. I mean, I'm... More in the business of, of talking to a company about, okay, what is your long term strategy? What, what do you want your consumer to think about in, in when they think of your brand? So, you know, a couple of obvious examples. I mean, if you're a company that uses a lot of water, you might want to be involved in an environmental cause. If you are a cosmetics company, that is nature oriented you might want to do something with trees there are strategies that i that i think uh, reinforce a brand's positioning what they stand for over time and it's not a flavor of the month oh there was i mean to me disaster relief is a separate animal almost than cause marketing and 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 someone could come in quickly and say okay we're going to give x amount of dollars and if it's done well Maybe they'll help the brand. Maybe it won't. But I don't think it's like a flip a switch. There's a disaster happening. Your company's going to do great. And it, it, it's more of a sustained strategy. As a matter of fact, some of the more mature not-for-profits and corporations won't get into bed together unless there's a two- or three-year commitment because that's how long it takes to build, especially, you know, a big company that has multiple brands. And so you're trying to build some sort of umbrella that can permeate two, three, four brands at a time that makes sense for the company. It's not a quick hit.
0: Do you think that this focus on good behavior for corporations partnering with causes is a trend, sort of like greenwashing was uh, a few years ago? Do you have a worry that companies have the wrong motives despite the potential help they could provide?
1: I think consumers drive that train, and I think the day that it stops becoming important to consumers, is the day that companies are going to turn around and say, "Okay, we'll we'll put our resources against the things that are, you know, that are going to help us build our brand with consumers." You know, it's a misnomer to think that cause marketing is all about altruism. I mean, in its purest definition, cause marketing is advancing the marketing goals of both the company and the cause. The intention isn't, oh, we're in it just to be nice people and not sell product or not build our visibility. It is. And that's cool. I, you know, I don't think, I don't believe, I don't subscribe to this notion that you can't make money doing good. As a matter of fact, I think that a lot of folks in the not-for-profit sector are violently underpaid. You know, I think the paradigm is changing. Another reason that I think it's an exciting place to be, but I think as you get more marketing-savvy people atop not-for-profits, like Charity Water does a wonderful job marketing, the more you'll see them emerging. You know, you asked me about statistics before. This other one that I throw around a lot, which a professor told me at Columbia, said there are as many not-for-profits out there looking for support from consumers as there are restaurants in New York City. Wow. Okay?
0: That's a stat.
1: Yeah. So... They are brands. They do have to differentiate themselves. They do need to be in the consideration set, right? And somewhere out there, (laughs) there's probably a not-for-profit that's a little garage band that's trying to slug it out against the American Cancer Society or something like that. And they can do great things with the right campaign. But I do think you're going to see in the not-for-profit sector – the not-for-profits get a lot more marketing savvy over time because as it becomes apparent, the competition is so hot, this dynamic, I think, is going to change.
0: Last year, you announced Fill Factor which is your first annual contest to select an innovative philanthropy to receive a pro bono marketing strategy and campaign. And you encourage the general public and the philanthropy community to submit descriptions of original and innovative nonprofits and social enterprises that they believed were deserving of a pro bono marketing and advertising campaign with a goal to advance the winner's mission, differentiate it from competitors, raise awareness of the organization, and elevate the brand with key audiences. Mm-hmm. How did it go?
1: <laughs> it went really well. And, you had a uh, whole
0: slew of people that submitted applications. I saw it was, that.
1: It was really interesting. The judging was was really interesting.
0: Why did you decide to do this?
1: Two things. Actually, we, like Good Cosmo, we had our own motives in mind. We wanted to build our, our following, our digital following, a little bit more. We wanted to get awareness for the agency. And a guy named Colin that works for us came up with this idea, which we thought was great and, and that we should run with it. And it was very on strategy for us. It was – and it was something we just – we're going to have a good Fun, time doing yeah. it. Yeah, it was great. And the stories were amazing. The stories that – you know, the things that people are doing, and it ranged from, from Fashion Avenue to – all walks of life, and and an organization called um, Swipes for the Homeless emerged. And and they have this wonderful program for college students who don't use up their cards, their meal cards. And you can just give your leftover swipes to the homeless. And so we're in the midst now, actually, of jamming on those campaigns and developing them, and we're in touch with them and uh, soon to be launched at a campus near you.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks so much. One of my favorite quotes that I discovered in doing my research for this show was your statement, nothing is stronger than the power of ideas, creativity, and entrepreneurship. And as a serial entrepreneur, you certainly are talking the talk and walking the walk, so to speak. So my last question is any advice for people starting or managing their own business?
1: If it's what you do, you know, another, I guess, music analogy, if you want to use it, it's like if you're a musician and you love what you do, sometimes you're going to sell records and sometimes you're not. Sometimes your business is going to be a hit and sometimes it's not. And at those times when it's not, because as someone who's been close to the edge, you know, with the Sloan Group, I mean... You, as you know, you're growing a business. I mean, I think I was in the hole for close to a million dollars with a pregnant wife and the whole thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't sleep. you know. <laughs> uh, but, but you have to – you got to believe. You got to believe. And if it's what you do and it's where your passions lie, then just keep doing it. And I will also say this. My experience has been if I had a dime for every time someone told me what I couldn't do, and even family members, oh, you're never going to do this. Oh, how could you start an agency? There's so many. It's just the world is full of naysayers. So just blow them away.
0: Thank you, Cliff. To learn more about Phil and Company and to watch a short video of Cliff talking about the importance of creativity in marketing, visit philandcompany.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio
1: at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.